Well, it's an honor, a privilege to gather with you for worship. Your smile, your face, your song, your presence is a primary way that I know and I believe that Christ has risen, where I've seen the Christ in you, and we're grateful for that. If there's any way that we can follow up or respond, we invite you to use the cards available in front of you, particularly if there's any way that our staff might partner with you in prayer, we invite you to use those prayer cards. It is just a great privilege in life to partner with you in praying for that which you care for in the world that we love. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The shortest sermon on record, according to the Guinness uh, book, is of an Episcopal priest, shocker, in Michigan. Shocker again. And the priest came to the pulpit, looked at the congregation, and said, love, and sat down. Last week, I began a sermon uh, encouraging brevity. And uh, to follow uh, said words, I preached with brevity. This week is not last week. Maybe one interpretation, one summary of the Abrahamic story as we receive in a bulk of the material in the book of Genesis. One summary of of Abraham's story is one of, of distance. It's a, it's a story of, of duration. The longest sermon on record, according to the Guinness book, recently was uh, broken by a, a young a preacher in Florida who began preaching sort of uh, at that time, celebrating, remembering, grieving the crucifixion of Christ, began uh, preaching on Friday evening and preached all the way until Sunday afternoon celebrating the resurrection of Christ. 54 plus hours. It was required that at least 10 people be in the church and be awake throughout the sermon. Abraham's story may be closer to that longer vision, that longer experience. It is a story of distance of duration. Abraham, as we read in chapter 21 and verse 5, is 100 years old when Isaac is born to Sarah. Catch that little note in there where the author begins by saying Abraham and Sarah are old, and then it says, comma, Clint, thank you for sharing your voice, comma, they're advanced in age. So for those of you who feel old, you're not old, you're just advanced according to scripture. Abraham is 100 years old when the promises of God that were first given in Genesis 12 and then reaffirmed in Genesis 15, 100 years old when these promises seem to finally be in play. And I'm admittedly and intentionally here skipping over a violence done to Hagar and Ishmael at the hands of Abraham and Sarah. We will be in Genesis much of uh, the summer and, and we will attempt to not just gloss over those difficult moments in our, in our text. God help us. But 100 years later, for Abraham, there is a glimmer of hope. And if you were to be told that 100 years from now, I wonder what, 
What is it that you might fear? What is it that you might hope for 100 years from now? What do you fear the most? What do you hope for at the deepest recess of your soul? That 100 years from now. One responsibility I think of our church is to value with and for one another what you deeply fear and what you deeply hope for. We may not all agree, but I have significant concern with regard for our planet. The health of our ecology arises a significant fear within me that 100 years from now, I am concerned about the world that we're passing on to our children and our grandchildren. What do you fear 100 years from right now? What do you hope for? I have significant, we may not share this fear, this concern. I have significant concern for the institution of the church. Not the reality or the spirit of the church. The church has been around for 2,000 years, undergoing by some estimate significant change about every 500 years. But the institution that I've given most of our life and our family's life to, I am concerned with respect to the institution of the church. One hundred years from now, I am hopeful for a, a more united humanity. And as others have suggested. Maybe it is this ecological crisis that we face. Maybe this is an opportunity, as it is the one planet and the one world we all share. Maybe this is an opportunity for us to come together. By the power of Christ, somehow, I hope for, 100 years from now, a more united humanity. Now, for the most part in our scripture, if not almost always, but for the most part in our scripture, the numbers we encounter are metaphorical. They're representative. One would be hard stretched to hold to a literal understanding of the numbers in our scripture, at least in a way that we post-enlightenment modern thinkers count. The number three, and there was one person who laughed at this joke in the early service, the number three in base two, do you know base, base two number systems? Can you see why no one laughed at this joke in the early service? Base two does not have the number three. I feel like Monty Python, you can't go very far in life without the number three and the word is. Can you imagine how important the number three is for Christianity, for our scripture? And as you may know, base two number systems is the entire way that computers work. 
There's just zeros and ones. And in base two, the number three is represented by 11. 11. Which I think one of the great spiritual questions is, what is your base? What is the foundation? What is the rhythm in which your life and your reality revolves around? Is Christ your base? The base in America, I gather, is a dogged individualism. It is. We are in an individualistic world, which is why it can be so difficult at times to encounter our scripture. It was not written from an individualistic culture. It was not written by people who thought of themselves first and foremost as individuals, but rather as members of an honor-shame culture. And this individualism has produced wonderful things in our American world. And this individual, this dogged individualism has also been our Achilles heel. The number 100 in Hebrew, which is also an Arabic base 10 number system, the number 100 is 10 tens, right? And the number 10 in, in Hebrew is representative of a, of a completion, a wholeness. The idea of perfection doesn't really exist in the Hebrew consciousness. That will come much later in our Greek New Testament. But by putting a 10 and 10 together... Uh, the authors here are suggesting that Abraham has waited ten tens, which is in reality maybe even a lot longer than a hundred years in the way that we might count. And so much of this Abraham and Sarah story asks that great question we find in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long, O oh Lord, will our families send their children to school with significant and legitimate concern for their safety? How long, O oh Lord, will our loved ones suffer? How long, O oh Lord, will this life you've given to me be lived with such loneliness? How long, O oh Lord, until there are enough dollars, enough days, and enough hours to get through the month? How long, O oh Lord, until the United States of America submits its preeminence over the world and wins a World Cup trophy? Three more years. And best I can tell, there is only one way to learn patience. The eternal wisdom of Daniel Tiger says there are many ways to say I love you. Many, many ways. But there is only one way that I can tell there is to learn patience. And so we wait 
Isaiah chapter 40 and 31 says, those who wait on the Lord will be renewed with strength. So we wait. We wait in secret. We wait alone. We wait together. We wait in a flurry of activity and a darkness of anxiety. We wait wondering, I think a lot like Abraham and Sarah, we wait wondering if we misunderstood that which we thought was promised all along. We wait. Like Abraham and Sarah, we wait for a birth. We wait for new life. We wait for an arrival beyond our capacity of understanding. We wait for a new light and a great hope for nothing is too wonderful for our Lord. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, French 20th century, 19th century, a scientist turned priest, says, above all else, trust in the still, slow work of God. <laughs> Abraham, in many respects, is a, question, is a story of duration, a story of distance. And yet, as uh, Clint has shared his voice with us this morning, the gospel narrative asks a different question. It does not ask a question of duration or distance, but rather a question of direction. Where, as Jesus is asked, as John the Baptist is asked many times in our Gospels, where is the reality of God? Where is the reign of God? Where is, as the Gospel of Matthew prefers, prefers to word it, where is the kingdom of heaven? And time and again, when John the Baptist is asked this question and Jesus is asked this question, the response is given to that which is evidenced. So Jesus says, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the, the nearness of heaven is where the naked are clothed, the hungry are fed, the outcasts are welcomed in, even the dead are raised. <laughs> this is where heaven is. It's sort of ending this uh, pericope, uh, Jesus sends his disciples out pro to proclaim the nearness of heaven. And Jesus on this occasion gives an even more uh, simpler version of where the presence of heaven is. And Jesus says to the disciples, where there is peace, there is the presence of heaven. Peace. And Jesus says, if you go into a home and there is not peace, don't, don't stay long. There is not the kingdom of heaven. And if you go into a place and there is peace, then stay. And, and there are certainly times for that which is opposite of this. But at least one way we know where we're going. One way we know the direction of things is that we follow peace. We head towards peace. I spent the bulk of the last week with two B leaders and youth camp. Peace is not the word that comes to mind. <laughs> 20 years ago, 20 years ago, I began discerning a call to a professional, vocational, a pastoral ministry. 20 years ago. 
And about 19 years ago, 364 days ago, I knew that such a call was not for youth and children's ministry. It would, it would be difficult to, to explain, explain why uh, with any sort of brevity. And, and so let me, let me extend to you, church, gratitude, um, just awe for Reverends Cheryl Gallerno and Josh McDonald and the ministry of Christ they extend to our children, our grandchildren, and also uh, you all who help fund these ministries, you all who participate in these ministries in various regard, uh, thank you for your ministry. I was reminded of that this week. This week, I watched our children at the South uh, Plains Food Bank Grub Farm. I watched our children pick weeds out of the ground where food will soon grow and feed our city. <laughs> I'll be honest, one of the greatest challenges in all of parenting for us is to get our kids to eat anything. They'll tell me what their favorite thing is. I'll set it down in front of them, and then all of a sudden they don't like it. And I watched your children, our children, our great, your great-grandchildren, I watched them gather right here in this very space and make hundreds of peanut butter jelly sandwiches to be sent to St. Benedict's Chapel to extend the nearness of heaven where the hungry are fed. You know, as I watched these kids pick weeds uh, at the grub farm, it, it was just absolutely incredible uh, to me thinking, there's no way any of these children help their parents pick weeds out of the flower beds at home. <laughs> Can a brother get an amen? That would be a miracle. And that struck me deeply. It did. You see, we don't have to have our whole house in order. We don't have to have everything just right at home. We don't have everything, we don't have to have everything put together in order to take that next right step towards the peace of Christ. I think this is significant. It is significant that children outside of their homes where they don't pick weeds would have a space in which they could pick weeds and grow food. Well, I must say this again, and I hope it encourages your soul as much as it encourages my soul. We don't have to have it all together at home. Or in this space, we don't have to have it all together in our lives in order to take that next right step towards the peace of Christ. I watched our youth in Abilene ask tough questions. Tough questions about faith and life. I, I watched them wrestle with not getting perfect answers to those questions. Yeah. I watched them stay up very late. I rephrase. I'm told they stayed up much later. <laughs> I watched them eat a lot of food. We ate dinner at five o'clock, and at nine o'clock, they were ready for second dinner. It, something struck me during, during worship at youth camp, and maybe it's because of where I sit, or just because of the entire setting, 
But, but I, I was deeply moved this week in hearing our youth sing. I could hear their voices being raised to the worship of God. To be leaders and youth camp may in fact be a space that is not defined by peace. But I stand before you today because of these experiences just this week, I stand before you today a person of great hope for the next 100 years for nothing, nothing is too wonderful for our God. Lord in heaven, receive these words, our prayer. Amen. Amen.